Hi there, my name is Emma Edelman, and you're listening to Tangible Grace, my story of hope. And welcome to episode four of my podcast, Tangible Grace. This is a podcast about my story, um, my personal story of hope amidst the struggles of life. Uh, If you have not already listened to the first three episodes, I highly, highly recommend you do that so that you understand where we're at at this point. I am telling my story basically in chronological order, so you're going to get it from the beginning to where I'm at right now, Um, and uh, if you kind of miss the beginning and miss what's led up to this, then you kind of wouldn't necessarily understand fully what's going on, Um, but the main hope and point of this um, podcast is to just show that no matter what we're going through, no matter what we're facing, God is always there for us, and uh, He will help us through it no matter what. All we have to do is trust Him and um, have faith and hope um, and believe that that is true. Um, I'm going to jump right into this episode. Uh, The previous episode, I talked about how uh, I became addicted to crack cocaine, and I kind of left it at that point where... um, I had considered myself to be a professional shoplifter, so uh, I was shoplifting to be able to get money to be able to feed my habit of both myself and my boyfriend at the time, Um, and that's kind of where I left it uh, until one day in August of 1996. Now... Just in case you haven't heard the previous episode or if it's been a minute since you listened to it. Um, I was in Atlanta during this time. That's where I lived. Still do. And um, if you're not familiar with Atlanta in 1996, there was kind of a big thing going on in the summer, which was uh, the Olympic Games. Summer Olympics were hosted in Atlanta. Well... Uh, I did not care at all about the Olympic Games because I was addicted to crack cocaine and that's all that mattered. And so in the summer of 1996, um, I walked into a store that I had been to many times um, and uh, proceeded my to do my little shoplifting routine that I thought I was so good at I couldn't possibly get caught. Outside in the parking lot, I was in Clayton County, just for uh, reference for anyone that's in Atlanta, which is south of the city, Um, and outside in the parking lot was my boyfriend and his brother's girlfriend in a car waiting for me to come out. Uh, If you want to call them my getaway car, that we'll go with that, because that's basically what they were. They were just sitting out there waiting for me to come out, so I was in by myself, I did my normal routine, picked up some regular clothes, picked up some lingerie because that is what was the easiest and had the highest price tag um, to steal, and went into the changing room, pretended to try stuff on, uh, really was just stuffing lingerie in my clothes. Um, At this point, I weighed 
about 110 pounds, which for me was um, very, very, very skinny. It was unhealthy skinny. Obviously, I was on drugs, so that's why. But um, all of my clothes were way, way too big for me. And so I wore huge baggy clothes with belts tied as tight as they could to keep them up and things like that. So I just was stuffing lingerie in. And I think I want to say at this point, we were just so desperate. We wanted to get whatever we could, like as much as we could, because we wanted that next hit. So of crack. So I had stuffed all these pieces of lingerie in my clothes. I think I even had one in my pocketbook that I was carrying. Um, came out of the changing room, hung up the things that weren't, didn't work, which in my mind, I thought it looked like I, looked like I was hanging up all of it. Obviously, I wasn't because I had the rest of it stuffed down my clothes. And started to walk towards the door. Um, what happened next would be um, another incredibly huge decision that would affect the rest of my life. Uh, and one I had to make in a split second. I was probably, I want to say I was maybe 15 to 20 feet from the front door, the glass doors, like of, you know, it's a, it's a department store in a mall. So it's big, you know, the big glass doors and I'm about probably 20 feet from those doors. And I hear coming behind me quickly, not running, but I could tell they're moving fast. I can hear footsteps and I knew I didn't have to turn around. I didn't have to think twice. I knew that those footsteps were coming for me. They were determined. They were quick enough that, like, this was about to go down. And I could see out of those glass doors my boyfriend and um, my friend sitting in the car waiting on me. They weren't even in a parking spot. They were, like, right out front of the of the entrance because I guess by that time I'd taken enough time they knew I would be out any minute. And so I had that split-second decision to make do I run because I fully believe knowing based on what I could hear behind me I fully believe that I had enough time to get out of those doors and jump in that car it would have been ugly but I could have done it do I run or do I surrender and this is when for the first time in months, I truly and honestly believe that I stopped long enough, even though it was a split second, I stopped long enough to hear God, to feel his presence, and to know you have to surrender. This is it. Like, this is, this is how this comes to an end. And so I did. I just stopped. I didn't even turn around. I just stopped still and stood there because I knew that they were coming for me. And I knew that this could be a way out. Now, I have to admit, I wasn't 100% sure that I wanted a way out. But something inside of me said, you know, it's got to end at some point. Right. And the way that my life was going was it was either going to be this or I was probably going to die. Um, so, again, I believe that's a God moment. I, I hold I hold fast to that. And I stopped. 
Um, and this girl, who at that time was 19 years old, who had been raised in a loving home, who had gone to church her entire life up until just a couple years before that, surrendered to the authorities, surrendered to herself, and more importantly, surrendered to God. And that was just a small stepping stone because it's it wasn't that easy, and it, and it you know it's it can't always be that easy, right? Sometimes it is, but it can't always be. And for me, it was not. But I surrendered, and I could see out of the window. I could see my boyfriend looking at me, and he could see them coming behind me. And his face kind of told it all. Like he was in shock, horror, even that that this was happening, and that I just stopped. Right? I just stopped. I didn't even try and get away. I just stopped. So, um, there begins my second incident with the law. And again, if you haven't listened to the other episodes, you can hear about my first one uh, back in episode two. <laughs> but um, I remember very clearly that they stopped me. They asked if I could come with them to the office. They wanted to talk to me. That's all they said. I, I knew. They knew. I knew. Whatever. So it was a man um, who was a, obviously a security guard and a lady who was obviously, you know, um, a, I guess in management or something. I don't know. A business lady. And they walked me back to this little tiny office, sat me down, and said they had reason to believe that I had been stealing from them. And, of course, initially I played dumb. What are you talking about? I don't know what you're talking about. So then a police officer walked in. They'd obviously already called the police. police officer walked in, and um, they uh, wanted to search my belongings. I gave them my pocketbook. And I think, honestly, I don't know. You know, you can always speculate over these things like they happen every day. But I, I speculate over that whole situation because they looked in my pocket but first, and I sure enough had stuffed stuff in there. And I wonder if I hadn't done that, if it had just been on my on my body, like under my clothes, if how far they would have gone to search. I don't know. I guess they still would have. Who knows? doesn't matter now, right? Irrelevant. But um, they found the pieces that I had put in my pocketbook um, they found my ID, so they knew who I was, and, um, they then asked if I had any more on my body, and I kept thinking, I could lie and say no, but they've already found that, and, you know, that's going to be enough for something. I don't know what happens at this point, but that's enough for something. You know, it's better for me to tell the truth now than to lie, and then later on, then find that I had more stuff. So, sure enough, I pulled out all the pieces, and it was actually quite a lot, um, quite a lot of pieces that I had stuffed in my clothes. And I sat there, and the police officer asked the lady to add up the total of what I had stolen. Um, and that was apparently because you need to, uh, they needed to know the amount, because over a certain amount determines whether it's a misdemeanor or a felony. So she added it all up, and it was a clear felony, initially. Um, and then, I, I don't know if she took pity on me. I don't know. I mean, I was 19. You could tell I was on drugs. You could tell I was not healthy. 
Um, this was not where I was supposed to be. I don't know. But she did something. She reworked the numbers, but unfortunately it still came out to a felony. She actually, I, I guess, I don't know. I don't know at that point. I know I found out more later, but at that point I didn't know all that. So basically I was told that I was being arrested for felony shoplifting. Um, and um, that I was going to have to go with them. And I do actually, I do remember that's when they told me that like the difference between a felony and a misdemeanor for me was like cents. It was maybe like 50 something cents. It's in my police record. I can't remember, but it was some really ridiculous number, but because she had already like, she told the, well, this was later in when I actually went for my trial, but they told the judge that they had even given me like sale prices on these items so that to try and get it below a mis- like to a misdemeanor, but they just couldn't. Like there was no more, nothing more she could do without jeopardizing her own job. So um, she had to leave it like that. And I remember in that office as they're putting the handcuffs on me, I remember saying to them, "Look, you can look in my pocketbook. I probably have however many cents it was. You can have it." She was like, "No," the, or the police officer was like, "No, that's not how this works." I tried, always trying. Um, anyhow. I will tell you that, um, bar none, I will say bar none, the most humiliating thing in my life, and again, there's been a lot of humiliating things, maybe not all bad, but just humiliating, (laughs) but the most humiliating thing in my entire life so far was walking through that store with handcuffs, with my hands, you know, cuffed behind my back with a police officer leading me. I'll never forget that. I'll never, ever forget that. People looking at me, you know, um, uh, it just was awful. And so he put me in the back of the car. And as I'm getting, as he's putting me in the back of the car, I look across the parking lot and I see my boyfriend and my and his brother's girlfriend in the in their car like way off in the distance and they can see me so they know I've been arrested they must have just waited just in case um so anyway he puts me in the back of the car and we start to drive to the jail and he's small talking with me and I'm you know I'm at this point now I'm bawling I'm completely emotional uh devastated what's gonna happen uh, my parents have already basically cut me out. They've, they even they had even changed their phone number because they didn't want me calling the house anymore. Um, and I, there was only one number I could reach them at home, which was their fax machine line, which was in one room. So if they weren't in that room, they couldn't hear it. Or I could call them at work. But um, I'm just absolutely devastated. And I'm literally sitting there thinking, okay, who can I call to bail me out? Who can I call to bail me out? Someone can, someone will come get me. My boyfriend, somebody will come get me. Um, so he then, the police officer then says, I've got to make another stop. I have to pick up another inmate or another whoever. I don't know who it was. I was like, what? No, this is mine. Like, what? You're going to have somebody else, like an, another criminal in here with me? <laughs> Oh, the things that go through your head. It's really quite incredible. Um, So sure enough, we stopped somewhere else, and this was like a, uh, he was already an inmate. He was doing like a work thing, or I don't know what it was, but, so he actually got to ride up front with the officer. I was in the back behind the bars, but whatever. 
I wasn't, you know, whatever. So we get to the jail. I get processed in, uh, you know, searched all over my body. Um, have to put the orange jail robes on, if you will. And uh, I'm given a pair of socks and a pair of shady-looking flip-flops. And uh, my stuff is all taken. And I'm putting put in a holding cell. And when I went in, I was the only one in there. Now, this is probably... I mean, it's during the day. It's probably early afternoon. I don't really know. I know it was during the day, though, because in the holding cell is a phone, a pay phone that you can use to call collect to people. There's also a urinal that you can sit on and use the bathroom in front of everybody if you need to. And I remember when I got in there, I was the only person in there. So I called... Um, I called my mom. I think I called my mom first. I don't know. I either called my mom or my dad first, but I had to call them at work because it was still work hours. And I had to call them collect um, to their work numbers, which is, you know, wow. And so, of course, as soon as they heard it, um, I want to say it's so difficult for me to remember. I want to say I talked to my mom first, and they would straighten me out on this, I know, but... And, of course, she was devastated. Um, although, I think I, they may have even said it then. If not, they definitely said it later. That it was almost a sigh of relief to know that at least I was safe. Because they didn't know. At that point, I was so out of control. They had no idea where I was or what I was doing. And so, um, she basically told me that I had to talk to my dad. That's right. I must have talked to her first. So then I collect called my dad at his job. And he was like, all right, well, you're just going to have to stay there. We're not coming to get you. I'm like, what? You're not coming to get me? Nope, we're not coming to get you. Um, those words cut like a knife. Even now, it you know, there's some pain associated with those words. But, you know, a few years later, and then from that point forward... I completely understood. And today, I cannot tell you how grateful I am that my parents did not come and get me. Simply because if they had come and gotten me that night or even in the next couple of days, there's no telling where I would be now. I would have gone straight back. I know I would have. Um, because I have very little self-control at that point. And I was addicted. So um, they refused to come get me. So, of course, then I, at that point, I'm devastated again, crying, etc. Um, I can't remember anybody's numbers. This is the other part of it. Like, you know, I didn't have my phone book. They didn't let me bring my telephone numbers in with me. So I only could remember, like, a handful of people's numbers. And the people that I called, um, who I did get a hold of, all wanted to talk to my parents. Well, why won't your parents come and get you? I'm going to need to talk to your parents first because they couldn't understand, you know, why this, again, 19-year-old girl is locked up in jail and her parents won't even come get her. There's got to be more to the story. And a lot of these people did not know the full story. And again, I believe that's a God thing. I believe that God had intervened and, you know, just set on these people's hearts. You got to find out more information. Like, why is she in there? Why is why are her parents not coming? Um, I called my best friend, and she may even straighten me out on this too. But I don't think I got a hold of her. 
I don't recall. I don't, I don't think I was able to get a hold of her initially anyway. But anyway, so, um, and then of course I was trying to get my boyfriend who they hadn't gotten home yet. Finally, someone at his mom's house answered, uh, and it was actually his boyfriend's sister. She wanted to make sure I was okay. I wanted to talk to him. He wasn't there because he had gone out to try and get money to get me out of jail because we had no money. I was shoplifting to get money to get drugs, etc. So he had decided he was going to go out and try and get money. But how was he going to do that? I don't know how he was going to do that, but that was his goal. He was going to go get money to get me out of jail. I mean, Lord knows I had bailed him out plenty of times, right? So I actually stayed in that holding cell for hours. I mean, I probably want to say at least six hours, maybe longer. And as I'm in there, more and more women are being brought in. This is like they keep the women on one side, men on the other. Um, all kinds of women. It's crazy to think about. Some of them are drunk. Um, there's one lady who's old, like in her 80s. And I'm just thinking, what in the world are you in here for? Like, what? What is this old lady in here for? So anyway, none of us really talked to each other. We weren't really in talking moods, I guess. Um, and finally, they came and they told us um, that we were going to be taken to the pod, which is where the cells are. Well, unfortunately, at that time, this was in Lovejoy, Georgia, Clayton County Jail. Um, there were three pods for the girls or women, three for the men. And it was kind of like a, a circle almost. And so you had three on one side, three on the other. And in the center was this like giant um, room that had, you know, one way mirrors or I don't know how you say that. You know, where up in the up in the roof or up along the top, the officers, the jail officers, prison officers could sit up there in this room and see into all of the pods, but we couldn't see them. Does that make sense? So then um, we are given, literally given uh, a pillow and a blanket. I believe they gave us a toothbrush. Yeah, they definitely gave us a toothbrush. Uh... I think they asked us, like, if we needed any feminine products or anything like that. And then we're taking, at this point now, there's probably about 12 of us coming from this holding cell into this into the first pod. And I found out later that the pods go up, um, one, two, three, in order of um, crime and in order of threat level. So, like, if you're a potential threat as far as you know, fighting or whatever, you're going to be in pod three. Whereas the lesser crimes, you know, more subdued, like, oh, crap, why am I here kind of people are in pod one. Well, that was me. So we walk into this pod and we're told that it's completely full. There's no room in any of the cells and that uh, we have to sleep on the floor outside the cells in the pod. And there's already women in there on mattresses all around this room. And to, as I, to try and describe this room to you, when you walk in, it's like, um, it's basically, it almost looks like a gym without, you know, the gym stuff. Like the floor is there. Um, there's lots of tables and chairs, but they're all, you know, um, welded to the floor. So obviously people can't pick them up and throw them at each other, I guess. There's two levels of cells. There's a bottom level at the end of the, the room, um, and then there's stairs up to the top level. And there, and there are two sets of um, showers, 
um, one of the on the bottom floor, one on the top floor, and I believe there's bathrooms in there too, like toilets in there as well. But all the cells have a toilet as well and a sink. So normally at night or whenever it's shutdown time, like all of the cell doors close, you're stuck in your cell until they say you can come out. Um, however, because it was so overcrowded, there was probably, I want to say at least 50 women sleeping on mattresses along the walls of the actual pod itself, which is what I had to do for a few nights. And so you just kind of put your stuff there on your mattress. You sat there. Um, there was some pay phones along the side of the wall as well that you could use if you wanted to make collect calls, but you had to get in line. <laughs> um, and then that was it. Like you just sat there. There were TVs. Um, there was, a, I believe there's just one TV in the pod. And like, so when you ate, you would sit at the little tables and eat and you could watch TV. Um, and during that time it was all Olympic stuff that was on or really trashy shows like Jerry Springer or whatever. <laughs> um, and I just remember the first couple nights were just absolutely awful. For one thing, you know, I couldn't believe where I was. I was terrified. Um, I, I just, I mean, it was just all so surreal. I couldn't believe that this was where I was and that no one would come get me. The other thing was that I was detoxing naturally um, and abruptly from crack. And that's not an easy thing at all. Trust me. Uh, but I had no choice, and that's why I said that last episode, that I, I didn't have a choice to stop smoking crack. I, I had to because I was in jail, um, which was very, very difficult. It wasn't like I could slowly or gradually come off of it. It was complete cold turkey. The only really saving grace, if you will, <laughs> inside that jail was that you were allowed to smoke. And so for the first couple of nights... Um, I think a lot of the women took pity on me because I was definitely the youngest there. And they would give me cigarettes, they would give me snacks until I had money on my books to buy my own stuff um, at the little store thing. Um, they would like just give me stuff, which, you know, I'm so grateful for now because honestly, being able to smoke is. And it sounds so ridiculous, but I believe that is a huge part of what kept me sane during that time. Um, so anyway, uh, I do remember that uh, the second day, like I, the after the first night, the next day, I called my boyfriend's house again because I was for sure like, oh, any minute now, someone's going to come get me. Uh, and they never did. So I called his house again and... He was, um, he still wasn't back and no one knew where he was. That's what happened. He still wasn't back yet. And so I just kept calling like throughout the day until finally that evening I would talk to his brother and his brother told me, he was like, Emma, uh, he got arrested uh, for carrying a concealed weapon and he's a convicted felon, so he's not even supposed to have a weapon. Apparently, he had gone out and tried to rob somebody um, to get money to get me out of jail. It went wrong. He jumped back in the vehicle, put the gun under his seat, fled, and the cops stopped him, found the gun, and that was the rest. And so for the entire time that I was in jail, he was also in jail, a different jail, but 
which there's some irony in that as well. The one person who for sure would come get me without a doubt couldn't and actually ended up in jail himself. Uh, so at that point, basically my, all my hope was lost because I knew no one was going to come get me. Um, I did have an, a, a court appointment or an appearance and they told me when it would be and it was my bond hearing. So I had asked my dad to come and I actually thought for some reason in my head, I truly believed that they were going to let me out of jail when I went to this hearing. Like they were going to have pity on me or something. My dad brought a good friend who was also a pastor in the Salvation Army with him for moral support. My mom did not come. Now bear in mind now my parents had not seen me for a few months. Um, so I know when my dad saw me it was a complete shock because just the sheer way I looked. I weighed like I think when I actually went to jail I was 101 pounds. Um, and you know, for me, a healthy weight for me is like 150, 160. So I looked very ill. Uh, and so I sat there, I was given a court appointed attorney and right before I went, like it was my turn. Cause there's several people who have turns as well. My attorney came and sat behind me and was whispering to me and he, he said, you know, I can't believe that no one will come get you. And I said, well, you know, maybe maybe I'll be let out now or whatever. So anyway, I went and had the, the bond hearing. I stood before the judge. I understood that what I did was wrong. I had I pled guilty. I knew that, I, I mean, I knew I was wrong. Or I admitted that I had, was in there for the right reason, whatever. I don't really remember, to be honest, because it wasn't my trial. I just knew that I accepted what they were saying. I accepted it. And, um, they actually went through a little bit of the information there for my case and the judge saw that my, um, the amount of money or the value of what I had stolen and obviously knew the difference between misdemeanor and felony. And it's something like, I want to say it was, um, if it's below a hundred dollars, it's a misdemeanor. If it's over a hundred dollars, it's a felony. And I want to say mine added up to, and it's in the paperwork. I need to find it, but I think it was like a hundred dollars and literally 52 cents or something. And even the judge said to the, um, store representative, like, really, we can't drop this down to a misdemeanor. You can't take off that. And they explained that they had already gone like this extra mile and in order for it to work out on their books, they just couldn't. And um, so I think even the judge was just like, that's crazy. Like, okay, well, it's a felony. And that was it. Um, and they set my bond um, for or my bail. I always get confused. Bail, bond, bond. For $500. $500. That is it. $500. For felony shoplifting. Um, and I think, honestly, the judge said that because he thought, oh, that's easy. She'll be out by the end of the day kind of thing. Um, but again, no one wanted to come get me. My my dad was there, and, you know, they didn't release me. And he just said, well, you know, you need to stay in for a while. You need to, you need to figure out what's going on kind of thing. Um, and so I did. And so my dad left, and... To bail me out, it's 
generally to bail someone out is 10% of whatever their bond is. So to bail me out was like 50 bucks, $50 and no one would come get me. Um, so I stayed in jail and I, I have a caboodle. That's a really weird word. I have a lot of stories I could tell you about jail and I am going to share a couple just because they're humorous and it sheds a little bit of light, but then there are some, um, really amazing things that happened as well. Um, that, were just another example of God working through other people, um, of how he was just so desperately trying to get my attention. Uh, and even though initially I still struggled to, to accept that and to see that and to believe that, um, you know, it's, it's still an incredible story in and of itself that how God worked during my jail time. Uh, I did stay in jail for almost a month before I was released. And my release is an incredible story as well. And I'm going to share that with you next time. Um, but uh, just one of the ways that God worked. And again, there were many ways. But one of the ways God worked was um, through the people who came to visit me. Now, again, I had turned my back on the church. I still obviously knew lots of people and considered people friends, even though I didn't see them or talk to them ever uh, for a couple of years. Um, but uh, these people showed how they had never, ever turned their back on me and that they were still there for me and still praying for me. And they did that by letters that were sent to me. Uh, I have many letters that I kept that were sent to me while I was in jail. Um, I, there were people that visited me, people that gave money, like put money on my books so that I could get, you know, snacks and cigarettes and whatever else I needed to tolerate my time in, in there. Um, there were people that visited me uh, and people that supported my parents in ways that I still, I still don't know the full support that they got because it was just tremendous. Um, again, I'm an only child. And we had immigrated from another country. And so for my parents to go through this, with their family being in England, for one, and, um, you know, just, just, I can't even imagine. And I've said it before, I have a son myself, and he turns 14 in a couple of weeks. And, uh, I mean, I was just five years older than him now when I went to jail, and I cannot fathom what that would be like. But I am forever grateful again that my parents left me there. Um, because that's how I detoxed. That's how I overcame addiction for the most part. And that's how I was able to start changing my life for the good. Back to where it needed to be. I mentioned in the last episode that um, episode five is going to be a little bit different and I'm, I'm excited about it. I'm incredibly humbled by it. Um, but I've asked some people who knew me back then, um, who were close to me back then, uh, who came to visit me while I was in jail. I've asked them to kind of 
just take a little walk down memory lane and think about who I was and, and what they remember me as being during that time. Uh, and I asked them to email their thoughts to an email address that I created specifically for this, um, for this podcast. I've not read their emails. There are at least three emails in there and I know there's one more coming. I've not read them yet. And my intention is for the next episode, I'm having a really good friend of mine, uh, come on the air with me and he's going to actually read those emails to me. Um, and I'm going to have a chance to react to them kind of on the spot, like on that podcast. It's terrifying because I'm sure I'm going to be an emotional wreck. Um, but I think it's important. Um, and I said this in the last episode, it's important to me that people understand that even though I was doing all of these things and even though I was such a mess and even though people didn't bail me out of jail, didn't mean they had turned their back on me. It meant that they were just even more supporting me and understanding what I needed at that time. It also shows that, um, even though I turned my back on so many people, um, they still were there. Like they didn't leave. And for anyone who's going through something right now, it doesn't have to be exactly this. Cause obviously this is just crazy. But, um, if you're going through any kind of struggle, I, I, really hope that there's someone out there who still is there for you. And maybe you haven't reached out to that person or maybe you're, you're terrified to, or maybe you're not sure, or, um, you just are like, are embarrassed or ashamed or whatever it is. I implore you to reach out to that person that you know is there for you, that you know has your back. And even if it hurts, even if it's difficult, even if it's embarrassing, whatever it is, open that door and let that person in so that they in turn can help you. Because I did not do that. For so long, I had people who were trying to reach me, who knew that I was in a lot of trouble, but I kept those doors closed. And most of the time, and that was God working through those people. Like they knew that I, that I needed him back in my life and they were trying to reach out to me and show me that, but I refused or I was blind or whatever you want to call it. There was just, I had a block. And if someone had been there all that time ago and said to me, you know what, just, just go talk to that person to see what they have to say, then maybe one of those people could have helped me steer back in the right direction. Of course, now we will never know in my case, but I don't want that to be the same for you. And while I did go to jail and while, you know, there are still difficult things to come in my story that I have yet to share with you all, um, you know, the point is that I made it through and God did not leave me and God did not desert me. And God used those people to help me, uh, through that time. And so again, I just, I just really want you guys to hear this. If you're going through something, think about that one person who you trust, who, or who has just really put themselves out there to say, I'll help you. You know, what do you need? 
talk to me, whatever it is. You know, even if it is just someone to talk to, sometimes that's all we need is somebody who we can talk to. Um, I just, I just really pray that that would be what you do today. Don't wait. Don't wait until it's too late. Like I did do it today. Um, because God will has, and will put people in your life that will help you. Um, there's absolutely no doubt of that. And on cue, my dog starts barking. Fantastic. Um, anyway, so I'm going to wrap it up for today. Thanks again for uh, tuning in to this episode. I look forward to talking to you guys again next week. I don't know if you can hear my dog, but he's now growling, which is great. Um, but as always, I want to leave you with my uh, life verse. But I hope that you can... Um, hold on one sec. Sorry. That I hope There's always something, you know? I mean, it just keeps it exciting. But my life verse that I hope can also be... Um, uh, your life verse. And if you, if not, maybe you have another verse that you cling on to. And I pray that you will do that because, um, God's word, it just, it has the power to change our lives. And it did that for me. Uh, but my life verse, and this is the message translation just cause I love it so much. Um, is from Philippians four verse 13. It says, whatever I have, wherever I am, I can make it through anything in the one who makes me who I am. Again, thank you for tuning in, and I look forward to talking with you guys next time. Take care. Just want to give a shout out to Marty Michaels, who provided our intro and outro music for us for each episode. Check him out at martymichaels.com. That's Marty, M-A-R-T-Y, Michaels, M-I-K-L-E-S. Dot com. He is a, a dear friend and a phenomenal musician, and you should definitely check out his work. Uh, so thanks, Marty, for providing the music for us.